our children to come forward, ages three through second grade. We have started back up our program called Children in Worship. Um, Many of you know about this program. It's a really great way for them to learn the stories of the Bible and to celebrate communion in an age-appropriate way. And so we bless each other before we go, um, acknowledging that God is with us here, God is with them there, and so we want to bless each other. So we say the Lord be with you, and they say also with you. Are you ready on three? Okay, one, two, three. The Lord be with you. And also with you. <laughs> yeah. All right. We should add that in, shouldn't we? The Lord be with you. Yeah. All right. You are free to go. Thanks for coming up here. Let us begin with prayer, the prayer of illumination. God of Abraham, as we read of actions that shock us, as we read of actions that raise questions, as we read of actions that get our pulses racing, we pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our reading and clarify our hearing. We come to listen and seek to understand so that we might love God and love our neighbor more fully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. My name is Abraham. I need to bring you up to speed. As you can see, I'm wrinkly. I'm a wrinkly old man. But I was not always so. I was once a young lad skipping stones on the Persian Gulf. That's where I was born, in a port city called Ur. That was my father's native land and his father's as well. It was, a, it was the city of Ur, Ur, and it was a wonderful place to raise a family. In fact, that's where I met and married my beautiful young bride, Sarah. Aren't weddings done right a glorious thing? We had dreamed of our kids, Sarah and I, skipping stones along the Persian Gulf, but that never happened. Soon enough, we discovered that Sarah was unable to have children. Then my brother died. He was far too young. It wasn't long after that my father made arrangements for all of us to move down south. I'm not sure why he was so adamant. Perhaps dad couldn't take the memories anymore. Out of respect, we left home and headed for the land of Canaan. Dad heard the land there was good. but You probably already knew that. So our destination was Canaan, but we never got close on that trip. Early in, we made a pit stop in a city called Haran. Funny thing... My brother, the one who died, his name was Haran. My brother, Haran, the city, Haran. Pretty close. Now, I don't mean to bore you with details, but I've always wondered whether that's why my father cut the trip to Canaan short. Perhaps he felt some strange connection to a city that bore a name so close to the name of the son he lost. I cannot imagine the pain of losing a son. Can you? We stayed in Haran for several decades. My father would die there. I worked there alongside my nephew Lot, Haran's son, until I was 75 years old. That's, that's why I have so many wrinkles. Meanwhile, Sarah seems to have gotten along all right in Haran, given the circumstances, that is. She was barren, you see. It's hard to put into words the shame she felt 
because of her infertility. All she ever wanted in life was to be a mom, but that dream was long gone by the time that dad died. Well, that was until this happened. I remember it as if it were yesterday. All moments of time are not the same, you know. Some moments have a weight and a depth to them that others do not. This was one of those moments, one of those thick moments laced with the sacred and holy. I heard a voice, not just internally, but audibly, with my own ears. I know that might sound strange to you, but I swear it's what happened. Leave your land, your family, and your father's household, for the land I will show you, the voice spoke. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. The voice continued, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Where was the voice coming from? Who was its author? I didn't know at first. The voice never told me his name, but I knew the origin of the voice must be divine. I wish I could describe the voice to you all. It was such a powerful, marvelous, yet gentle voice, like the sound of rushing water, clapping thunder, yet also like the sound of tender harpists playing their harps. I knew this was one of those weighty moments in life laced with the sacred. But I had so many questions at the time. The main one was this, to which God did the voice belong? You might not know this about me, but I grew up believing in several gods. The gods of the Chaldeans. The moon god was the most high. We called this god Nana. We worshiped Nana as the power that controlled the heavens and the cycles of life on earth. But all of our gods, you see, were distant objects of worship. Even Nana. None of them interacted with humans personally. Why would they bother? That's why I was so perplexed when I heard the voice. That's why I was ready to follow as soon as I heard it. Four sentences were all the voice said at first, but they were enough to get me going on an adventure that would change my life. So I did as the voice said. We hit the road and headed to Canaan, our destination from so long ago, back when my father started us there. I had no idea what to expect, honestly. There I was, a wrinkly 75-year-old man with my infertile 65-year-old wife, along with my nephew of my deceased brother, and all those servants and all that stuff. We must have looked like a traveling circus. We traveled for miles and miles, all because I heard a voice, a mysterious voice full of demand and wild promise. I knew the voice must be the voice of one of the gods. Which one, I did not yet know. How silly the trip must have seemed for others. She never said it, but how ridiculous it must have seemed to my wife, Sarah. But there we were, moving along. What in the world were we doing? Then I heard the voice for a second time. We had arrived in Canaan, our destination, and one day I was admiring the Oak of Moray. It's a famous site I heard about when I was a kid. 
It was there that I not only heard the voice, but I saw the one who was speaking to me. You may not believe it, but I saw the Lord. The Lord appeared to me. That is, the invisible God somehow assumed a form of appearance. I don't know how else to describe it to you. I say the Lord because now I knew that the voice did not belong to any of the gods I grew up with. This was an altogether different sort of deity that I knew nothing about up to this point. This was a personal God, a God concerned with the affairs of humans, a God who cares, a God who provides. This time the voice said, I give this land to your descendants. That's it. That's all the voice said this time. Honestly, it's probably all I could handle, but it was more than enough to keep me focused on the mission. It seemed only right to build an altar right there in the Lord's name, so that's what I did. Now, I must spare you many details for now. If you'd like, you could read all about them. I believe they are written in in what you call a Bible. Genesis 12 through 21 will fill in all sorts of details of my story. In fact, there's a story to match every wrinkle of mine. Not all of them are pretty. In fact, many are filled with things I regret. I did some terrible things, you know. But I must own my story, and so I share it with you. Now let me just tell you one little story to bring you up to speed, and then I'll, I'll tell you the, the wildest story of all, the wildest story that ever happened to me. First, the little story. This took place when I was 99 years old, if you can believe it. After arriving in Canaan, my family and servants and, and I, we were wandering around the Middle East for almost 24 years, 25 years. Now, during this time, as I said, the Lord spoke to me audibly, a total of six, six times. The conversations started to get longer and longer. I started to, to come to know more and more about the Lord, whose voice I heard. And I felt more and more comfortable, not only listening to the Lord's voice, but also responding with some words of my own. Strange though it may seem, the Lord, the, the voice that I heard from the Lord gave me the impression that my questions were valued, that my questions were more than welcome in our conversations, and I had many questions. One question in particular kept gnawing at me year after year after year. How would I produce the descendants whom the Lord promised to provide? After 25 years, I had indeed become very wealthy. Through unusual circumstances, the Lord had provided me with enough livestock and silver and gold to cover, to cover the, the, the area of Canaan. In fact, there are so many possessions between me and my nephew Lot that the land couldn't support both of us living in the same place. We had to part ways. And after 25 years, it wasn't just wealth that the Lord provided. I had gained more and more political clout, more and more respect of of the players, the political players of the day. Thanks again to the Lord. The Lord provides. Amen? The Lord provides, amen? But my question persisted. 
how would I ever have descendants? I'm 99 years old at this point. So the fourth time I heard the voice, I made the most of it. I finally mustered up the courage to respond. The Lord's word came to me in a vision this time, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. Then, for the first time, I spoke back to the voice. Lord God, what, what can you possibly give me since I have no children? The head of my household is Eliezer, a man from Damascus. Since you haven't given me any children, the head of my household will be my heir. I wondered if the Lord would strike me dead then. Was I allowed to talk back to the voice? I didn't know. But to my utmost delight, the Lord was so gracious and kind. The Lord's word came to me immediately without delay and said, This man will not be your heir. Your heir will definitely be your very own biological child. Friends, that was the best news yet. All the wealth in the world, all the political influence were like nothing compared to this glorious promise for a son. The Lord was going to provide me with a son, my very own son, from Sarah, my beloved wife. Can you imagine a deity that interacts so closely and personally with humankind? A God that cares for individuals. At that moment, I trusted the Lord. The Lord provides. Well, there's so much more I want to tell you. You can read about it for yourself in that Bible of yours, Genesis 12 through 21. But for now, I must tell you the wildest story of all. I've tried to make you as ready as possible to believe it. I hope you do. Hear now the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son whom Sarah bore him. Skipping to chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had showed him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will, will go over and we will worship. Then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he, he laid it 
on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father? And he said, here I, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Abraham, the father of many nations, the father of the freed. Abraham, the man through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, the one who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. According to the New Testament, those who believe in Jesus are called the true children of Abraham. What a magnificent story God has written for Abraham. And here, at the very end of it, we have this horrific account that makes us wonder and question and tremble. What was Abraham thinking and feeling as he made the slow three-day hike alongside his beloved son, knowing that he was going to kill him as a sacrifice to God? What was God thinking and asking him to do such a thing, such a horrific thing as child sacrifice? Of course, we now know that God had no plans of carrying it out, but Abraham didn't. But still, why would God ask this of Abraham? Didn't God know the psychological damage that would cause Abraham? Not to mention Isaac, didn't God foresee the emotional baggage this kid would have to deal with growing up? Having experienced his father tie him up, lay him on wood, and raise a knife over his body. Why would you do this, Lord? The easy answer is right there at the beginning of the text. After these events, God tested Abraham. Why did God do this? In order to test Abraham very well. So do we then drop the matter and pretend like we're not inflicted with questions? Maybe some of you are able to do this, but I cannot. As a father, I cannot. And I take Abraham as my example, who gives me permission to ask God some questions, 
respectfully, of course, with humility and reverence and trust, yes, with God's help. But if Abraham is any example, then I have permission and you have permission to ask God some hard questions about this text. We'll only have space for one question this morning, but it'll cover a lot of ground. Here's the question. Lord God, why child sacrifice? Why choose child sacrifice as the means by which you tested Abraham's faith? Wasn't there a less psychologically damaging way? Couldn't you have sent a violent storm or something? Why ask Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, the very son you clearly promised to provide for the sake of, you, of your mission? Lord God, why child sacrifice? I believe the Lord's answer requires a basic understanding of the religious context in which Abraham lived. As I said earlier in the narrative, Abraham did not grow up believing in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Sometimes we assume this is so, but it's not. The book of Joshua makes it clear for us, chapter 24, verse 2, Long ago, your ancestors lived on the other side of the Euphrates. They served other gods. Among them was Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. Among those who served other gods was the father of Abraham. Abraham, therefore, grew up around other so-called gods. Now, with just a little bit of research, we learn what I described in the narrative. We learn that Abraham grew up believing in many gods, the greatest of which was the moon god, Nana. And we learn that none of these gods interacted personally with humanity. They were all distant, distant deities. Now, it's helpful to have this context in the background as we see Yahweh, the God of Israel, revealing himself more and more to Abraham over time. So that's what's happening in Genesis 12 through 22. God is revealing his character. He's communicating who he is bit by bit to Abraham. Now, more specific to the story we just read is an important detail about the role of child sacrifice in the ancient religions of Abraham's day. You see, child sacrifice was commonplace among the religion of Israel's neighbors. In fact, this pagan worship found its evil way into the worship of a couple of Israel's kings. 2 Kings 21, for example, tells of the evil king Manasseh. It says, He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, saw omens, and consulted mediums and spirits. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So we see later in Scripture God's clear condemnation of child sacrifice. And we see in Israel's neighbors the practice of child sacrifice. Sacrifice of children was common in those days. But why would people do it? What was the logic behind it? People did it because they thought the gods liked it. To be more specific, the people of Abraham's day practiced child sacrifice because they thought it was the best way to get the gods to provide for them. 
This was how to get the gods to provide the goods. It was about control. So you're having a drought, or you're building a city, or like Abraham, you're starting a nation. In order to earn the gods' favor, the idea was that you had to sacrifice your own child. In return, the gods would provide for you. You sacrifice a child, the gods provide in return with rain, or with a successful building campaign, or with a prosperous nation. That was the logic in the ancient religious world. So when Abraham first heard the voice of the Lord command, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him, he was probably not surprised. As you'll notice in the text, Abraham is remarkably silent in response. This was simply the way it was done everywhere. Child sacrifice motivated the gods to provide the goods. And the goods here were all the blessings God had promised long ago. I will make of you a great nation, God had said. I will bless those who bless you. Abraham might have thought to himself, okay. So when it comes to the whole blessing category, this God, the voice that I'm hearing, this God is like the other ones. If I want God's blessing, I better pay up. Now let me remind us that the knowledge of the true God is very much still unfolding for Abraham. He's coming to know more and more who the author of the voice is, what his character is, what God requires. The first time he hears the voice, all he knows is that he's called and set apart for a mission. By the third time, he's learned that the voice goes by the name Yahweh, or the Lord in English. And he knows that this is the God who created heaven and earth, that Yahweh is the giver of life. He knows all that by this point. Why would the giver of life ask for a life? This question probably ran through his head more than once. But ultimately, Abraham probably assumes there's no way around sacrifice if one is to receive God's provision. So he thinks God is simply teaching him how to earn God's favor so that God would provide. Is this making sense, I hope? But the real shock of the story is that God is not teaching Abraham how to get God to provide, but the exact opposite. God is teaching how God provides. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Turns out, set in its religious context, this story is the undoing of the ancient religious claim that God requires child sacrifice. Yahweh declares a loud and definite no into a world where child sacrifice was commonplace. That's not pleasing to me one bit, Yahweh teaches Abraham and all his descendants that would follow. I don't like it, God says. In fact, I am disgusted by such evil and violence. So now, today, we live in a world where people receive the most severe criminal charges for hurting their children. Friends, this is our God's doing, and it started 
with the undoing of this common practice of child sacrifice. We don't get to where we are today without that. What's more, God is not only proclaiming a loud no that has resounded down the canyons of time to our own day, God is also rebuking the logic behind the practice. And we need to hear this for ourselves. God says no to the logic that human beings must do things to earn God's favor so that God provides. This is not how the true God operates. Exposing this faulty logic was the greatest accomplishment of the Protestant Reformation, which we celebrate its 500-year anniversary this year. We don't need to busy ourselves with service to earn God's favor so that God provides. We don't need to be good enough people to earn God's favor so that God provides. It's not even about saying enough prayers to earn God's favor so that God provides. God is not holding out a prayer bucket, and if human beings can only fill it with enough prayers, then that'll tip the scale in their favor, and then God will provide. This logic is so enticing because we want to be in control. And if it's up to us to do certain things, to earn God's favor so that God provides, then it leaves us in control of the provision. Do you, do you follow the logic? But we all know deep down that most of us cannot even manage our own lives very well, let alone God's. So friends, the good news of this text the good news that the Reformers reminded us of 500 years ago is that God provides because that's just who God is. God provides out of the fullness of his character. God provides out of his goodness, his generosity, his paternal love. As a good father would never require sacrifice before providing for the needs of his children, so our Heavenly Father chooses to provide for our needs out of the grace of his being. That's just who God is. And that is a lesson Abraham needed to learn on that dreadful day, and we all need to learn it again and again in our day as well. God provides because that's just who God is. Now let me close by summing up and connecting some dots. Abraham learned this lesson of grace through the provision of a ram caught in a thicket. He passed the test of faith, which requires not sacrifice, but wholehearted, grateful trust in God. As his own son carried the wood on his shoulders, Abraham believed that God would stay true to his promise somehow. And, you know, the author of Hebrews adds a little divine insight into our story. You might remember this. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom it had been told, It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. So Abraham learned on that day the lesson of grace. 
on the day his son carried the wood on his shoulders toward what he thought would be his sacrificial death. Abraham passed the test of faith, believing that God could raise his son even from the dead. And in this instance and for all time, God says no to human sacrifice and provides him with a ram caught in a thicket. This, of course, in our own day as Christians, it's a sign pointing toward another dreadful day. As 4th century preacher Chrysostom says, it was necessary that the truth was sketched out ahead of time in shadow. It was necessary that the truth was sketched out ahead of time in shadow. So on the day of Abraham, there was a truth being sketched out for the future. And on that other dreadful day, we learn that while God says no to human sacrifice, God says yes to divine sacrifice. God is the God who sacrifices for humans. On that day, we witness the most mysterious picture of grace the world has ever known. It was on that dreadful day, 2,000 years ago, when God's only Son carried the wood on his shoulders toward what would truly be his sacrificial death. On that day, God says yes to the rescue of humanity by saying yes to the sacrifice of divinity and the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. So may we pass our own test of faith today. May we believe that God provides out of the fullness of love for us. May we believe that God makes the sacrifice for us so that we can respond in gratitude and service and love, not because we're earning anything, but because God has already accomplished everything on our behalf. God says yes to the rescue of humanity by saying yes to the sacrifice of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So may we pass the test of faith today, believing God provides out of the fullness of love for us. And when hope seems bleak, may you believe that God is able, even in the dirt of death, to raise people from the dead. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, your word comforts us, and sometimes it troubles us. But as we wrestle with it, we see that you are a God who provides. Lord, we thank you for the lesson that you taught Abraham so long ago. And we thank you that it was a shadow of that most glorious day when you taught us that you, O oh God, in the most amazing way, are the God who sacrifices. Lord, it, it amazes us. We believe it. It is so miraculous that it must be true. So we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.